Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The big electron, the big electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Of course you feel it. Now what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing. Get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, it's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. Welcome to the Big Electron here on KCOU 88.1 FM. Happy New Year. Uh, we're really excited to start this new year with a with the show again. Yeah. Uh, just to remind you, I'm Jackie. Uh, I'm Electron number two, named Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anahita. I'm Madeline. And we are the Big Electron. We're grad students here at Mizzou. Um, and Anahita and I are from chemistry. Yay. Mm-hmm. I'm from genetics <laughs> yeah. slash vet, veterinary pathology. Yeah, I'm from the sort of cloud-like, vaguely defined field of biology. <laughs> well, I wouldn't necessarily say cloud. I would say very extensive. It's amoeba-shaped. It's, uh, it's big. It has big tentacles everywhere. <laughs> So there I think go. I'm I think I'm starting us out today, right, with our our topic. Yep. Um, uh, before we get started, though, just to remind you that you can call us here on studio at five seven three eight eight two eight two six two. You can also text us at that same number, and you can also find us on our Facebook page where we are the Big Electron. So, if you have any questions or comments for that for us, uh, feel free to reach out. So Madeline, you have some cool stuff for us. Yeah. Um, so I, I came across this on the Cell homepage. And this is a whole video about Venus flytraps. And they're just kind of cool in general. And then I watched this video and got super nerdy because it's talking about things that remind me of neuroscience and gene regulation and all this stuff. But uh, it's really cool. So basically, um, what happens when a Venus flytrap works like we all know what it does right the little fly steps on its leaf like things <laughs> yeah it's a mouth um and this triggers it to close and then so after that the the venus flytrap has to first release all these digestive materials and then it has to actually uptake the nutrients so that it can you know get the goodies from this fly and uh so some researchers recently kind of figured out how it does this and it was a fairly simple experiment. They just took this um, this Venus flytrap and they poked it. And um, I didn't realize that what happens when they poke it is that this Venus flytrap has, uh, it's called mechanoreceptors. And um, the, the aspect in which this is like neuroscience is that once this mechanoreceptor or just something that uh, senses some sort of force, once that's triggered, it releases what's called an action potential, which is just um, a, a flood of charged 
particles that move um, through different cells, and that's how our brain conducts electricity. If you ever hear about them talking about the electrical circuits in your brain, that's what they're talking about. And um, I never think of plants as doing anything quickly. <laughs> Neither do I, and I work with plants uh, exclusively. Yeah. They are, they're not uh, really very fast at, at anything that you want them to be. Yeah. They're, so They're just, they, they're far more patient than we are most of the time. That's but. good. Um, so, so upon this stimulus, there's an action potential. So it looks like a brain. And then, um, so the first, the first time this is touched, it causes the fly trap to close. But then the fly starts freaking out in there and wiggling around a lot. And so it's just making these mechanoreceptors go crazy. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole bunch of um, action potentials that keep happening all in a row. So I wonder if the fly just stopped moving. Yeah, I don't if know. It would... If it would slowly open back up. Right. I don't know. That's a great question. That would be pretty cool. I might have to go invest in a Venus flytrap. I, <laughs> I would guess not. And I'm going to say that based on some random nature documentaries that I've seen showing <laughs> this exact thing. Because what happens then if the fly dies? Oh, yeah. It's going to stop still, moving. Yeah. And you don't, the Venus flytrap wouldn't want to just say, oh, well, I'll let it go now. Like it's going <laughs> to, it's going to go it's ahead. It's going to keep going. Eat that then. Yeah. Well, so with this, with this study, what they found is that the first time the mechanoreceptor is touched, it closes. Then touches two through five start the process of re releasing the digestive material and then start, uh, I think it was like after five is when it, the flytrap starts absorbing the nutrients. And so it's like the, the flytrap is like counting so <laughs> how many times the fly wiggles to figure out. And um, the mechanism by which it does this is by turning on certain genes, which is just really cool. You know, all these things are happening really fast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we think of genes. Yes, they make us up. But I honestly, even being a biologist, I, I don't think about them changing that much. You know, I think of myself as a person. Like I'm kind of the same person that I was here yeah, yesterday. But yeah, no, this is all just, you know, happening really fast. And I don't know, just a bizarre new world that I had never thought about. <laughs> so how do they, how do they get like the new genes, the, the new material that like, how do they, do they just keep transforming or like making different combinations of the genome that they um, have? So actually the, the mechanisms by which organisms change their, the genes that they are upregulating and downregulating really quickly are some of the same ones that we use in things like, like that we would want to use for gene therapy. So for example, um, what happens is, um, so you want to turn this gene on, you have some proteins that bind to that, and then um, that starts this whole process of that gene being read, and then it gets translated into the proteins that it needs to make, and so that all happens. But um, at a very at a much quicker pace, you you know you want to turn this gene off on, but you also want to turn its antagonizing gene off, and so that's kind of where some of these things like um, microRNAs come into play, and so these are just RNAs that bind to other RNAs and get them to degrade really quickly. So um, it's kind of the same thing, you know, that happens in development or things like that, where you have to have really rapid um, changes in gene expression so that, you know, this cell can say, well, you know, I thought I was going to be this type of cell, but now I'm going to be this other one. Mm -hmm. um, that has to happen really quickly. So yeah. so yeah, that's kind of the mechanism 
by which those things always happen. But um, so they're not necessarily changing their genome; it's just the expression. Just of the expression the levels the of yeah. certain yeah. things. Yep. Okay. From in one individual, they're always going to have the same genome. They've yep. got all the same genes in all their cells. But yep. and so do we as individuals. Mm -hmm. But we've got different genes sort of turned on and expressing in our the cells of our eye compared to the cells of our skin, for mm -hmm. example. That's and there's all sorts of mechanisms at a really uh, not very well understood level um, that the cells are responding to to turn this set of genes on and this other set of genes off so mm -hmm. that the cells are different from each other and doing what they need to do. The idea that a plant would have a mechanism for reading electrical signals and you know turning things on and off with that is, uh, that's not how plants normally work. Yeah. You know, like plants normally don't have sort of nerve-like cells to, you know, eat us. Yeah. <laughs> normally it's the other way around. Yeah, so normally think, plants, but. they're like, you know, sensing the sun, and then this causes a mm -hmm. slow upregulation of some other thing and a downregulation of, you know, the other thing. But, yeah, this, this rate is really cool. So you've been That's mentioning really up and down regulation. What are those? Yeah, um, so it's just... I want more of this gene, so I, that's just the term that we use to turn this gene on. So, you know, you can kind of think of genes and we call them promoters, the regions that lie in front of genes that cause their expression to be turned on. So they're kind of like a light switch. And so when we flip the light switch on, that gene is being upregulated. Um, when we turn it off, it's now being downregulated. There's other things like, you know, you could also degrade the protein and stuff. So that would be kind of another form of downregulation, but mm -hmm. at the genetic level, it's it's basically that on off switch up and down regulation. Okay. Yep. We're really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> it's biology. <laughs> yep. We we are it's, complicated. It's a big mess, a big amoeba <laughs> that uh, has all sorts of levels to it. But even biologists often take a long time to really appreciate just how complicated the mechanisms are for regulating what genes are on and what genes are off at any given time sure. in a different cell. So they're responding to all sorts of things in the environment, all sorts of things internally within the body. And uh, mm -hmm. this one apparently is responding to whether it has eaten a bug, yep. uh, <laughs> which is pretty neat. So let's hope that um, corn and other plants don't develop the same <laughs> ability or we're going to be in real trouble as a species. <laughs> Yep, if, yep. Just just pro tip, don't wiggle. <laughs> if you get eaten by a corn plant, don't wiggle. I can't help but think about Little Shop of Horrors. Uh -huh. <laughs> Feed me. Yeah. Very so, cool. Yeah, so since we're talking about DNA, I found this article. It's kind of old, uh, but it, it, it's always good, too, to come back to it. Uh, and it's pretty much so something that scientists and have been wondering for the longest time is, where did we turn from being animals, from being chimpanzees or monkeys, into humans? Granted, not humans as we are right now, but, you know, some sort of human, mm -hmm. and then that eventually developed. So, it turns out uh, this professor at uh, this team uh, led by the assistant professor of anthropology at Penn State, they found out that actually what separate that separated us uh, humans from other animals is uh, about seven million years ago 
that's when the species separated. And it's thanks to known coding DNA. Non coding? So, known coded, uh-huh. yeah. Missing segments of known coding DNA. So hmm. when we say, uh, and you can help me with this, Madeline, it's. Um, we were saying expressing a gene, which is kind of the same as coding DNA, uh, coding DNA right? Mm-hmm. Of the same thing. So things that you can read. So you have 2.3 billion base pairs of your DNA. Not all of them are sort of active. Actually, most of it is inactive. And only certain parts, which are the active genes, are the ones that can be promoted mm-hmm. and read and mm-hmm. um, transcribed and, all, and things of that nature. So what they're saying is that uh, the known coding, so the ones that are kind of silent, are the ones that eventually helped us turn into That's into very humans. cool. So actually what I was just talking about with the microRNA, that's an example of non-coding RNA. So back when um, you know we were doing the Human Genome Project and all that stuff, scientists were realizing that, oh, we have all this, all this DNA and only a very small portion of that gets actually made into proteins. And proteins are usually, you know, what do the functions of all the things in our body. Mm-hmm. And so they said, well, this must just be junk DNA. So that was the, the pretty technical term for it for a while. <laughs> and then they realized that there's these other um, non-coding RNAs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, RNA is kind of like the middleman. You have your DNA, which is always exactly the same. And then we'll say either... Protein. So it's going to... It's gonna start with an RNA. So this RNA is going to get upregulated. And then if it's a coding RNA, that's going to get translated into a protein. But there's translation, also... translation, we mean it will be converted. It'll be to, converted, yeah, into this thing that, you know, we're more capable of using. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so the alternative is that it just stays as an RNA. And so, you know, you could think that, well, if they're not being made into protein, they must be useless. But they're now finding all sorts of uses, uses yeah. for these that these RNAs do. So in terms of gene regulation and um, just all sorts of other stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. Yeah. And so what they're what they're saying is that um, when they compared the human genome with the animal, let's say chimpanzees, they uh, this was published in Nature, and they said they can confirm 510 deletions in humans which all of them almost fall into the known coding regions are uh, are kind of like the main difference that we have between our DNAs. Mm-hmm. So it's all that. Uh, one of them, which um, if we have men in the audience, they're going to they're gonna enjoy this. Uh, but <laughs> one sequence, especially uh, close to the androgen receptor gene, uh, has two uh, consequences. One of them is the human loss of sensory whiskers <laughs> and small spines on the penis. Huh. Oh. So, <laughs> so that's that's like the... the <laughs> so chimpanzees have this? Yes. Oh, I, I googled it. I didn't, I didn't know this was a thing, but they have... Uh, so, <laughs> We're children here. Don't mind us. Scientists are mature, responsible, reasonable adults. So the reason Absolutely why, uh, so apparently chimpanzees do have spines in their in their penis, and that's because they have a really quick intercourse, uh, because they're all the male chimpanzees are in competition to see which male can fertilize the one receptive female. Huh. Mm. Um, and so when uh, you know they. Because they, they have to, uh, 
because they are tactile, the chimpanzees' uh, spines in, in the penis mane has this rapid uh, copulation mm-hmm. and like get cool. and produce mm-hmm. baby chimpanzees. So apparently, that's that's like huh. that helps. Um, it's funny that it's like <laughs> spine in the penis and sensory whiskers. Like, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have expected like, those things to be related. Yeah, and so what they're what they're saying is, well, however, humans, uh, and you know, we're talking millions of years ago, they evolved into something more of a pair bonding relationship and a group living, and so uh, the loss of the spines. Uh, prolong the intercourse to reinforce wow. the pair bonding. Hmm. Uh, so its partners really... are beneficial uh, for the successful reigning of the racing of the offspring. So our social habits mm-hmm. changed our biology. Apparently, that's really cool. Yeah, that's that's what they're saying. And so the losses started about seven million years ago, uh, and then human ancestors split from the Neanderthal uh, eight hundred thousand years ago, and all and most of them are on known coding DNA that, that just started being lost. Hmm. Uh, and that's how we eventually hmm. started being, being different. Um, so. Well, so if you hear somebody saying that most of your genome is junk DNA and you don't need it, don't listen to them. You need that. <laughs> Keep Do it. Not don't let them it. take it from you. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, you could end up with some interesting anatomical features. Yeah. <laughs> That would not be beneficial for you or your partner. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, that's 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 one of the things that that differentiate us. Uh, <laughs> they also say about uh, the brain, of course. Sure. Um, that's that's one of the main things, but it's. They don't talk much about it, probably. Uh, it's they're, just they're, they're more interested in something something else. <laughs> well, so. I think I think because it's kind of hard to like study brain function when. Mm-hmm. When there you're, is no when more you're brain. distracted when there is. by, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, oh, well, yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's that's one of the one of the, the things that they that they attribute to why we can be differentiated between animals and very cool and us. So, hmm. with that, we're gonna go on our first musical break. You're listening to the Big Electron on KCOU 88.1 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. We have some a new section, kind of. <laughs> Do we want to say it? A new a new segment. There we yeah, go. Yeah, a new That's segment. A new segment. I couldn't find the word uh, that we're gonna be doing. Hopefully, almost every week, because uh, we got this uh, this set of of questions uh, that that were given to us. Um, which is really cool. We're we're excited about this. Um, so, the new segment is called "Ask a Scientist," and these are questions provided to us. Uh, they're questions that are asked by elementary students, elementary school students, middle yes. school, elementary, mostly elementary school students uh-huh. from around Columbia. Um, Dr. Deanna Lankford uh, provide has gone around to all these different schools in the area and ask kids what questions they have for scientists and um she gave us these questions mm-hmm. so we're going to start answering them <laughs> yep yeah. Yeah, yeah so we have our first one yep so this is from jennifer smith and she uh is a fifth grader at russell El- russell boulevard elementary and her question was 
why is Pluto not a planet anymore? Which is a really great question and been, you know, something that a lot of people have wondered about lately, I think. Yeah. Because yeah, we is. all learn nine planets. Right. Yep. And now they're learning eight. There's that acronym or that <laughs> yeah, sentence yeah. that we all learned mm -hmm. um, yeah. to so. keep in mind. And now, now there's no more Pluto. Well, um, a quick way to answer that question is um, some of the things that a celestial body needs to have to be designated a planet. One of them is it needs to be in orbit around the sun. Check. Which, yes, check. Pluto's good. It's in the clear there. It does have a uh, different orbit than the other planets in our solar system. It's more ovally, I believe. Yeah, which is why sometimes it's like inside the orbit of Newton, uh, Neptune, Neptune yes. and sometimes out of it. Right. Yeah, that's why those two sometimes switch the order when you're going from distance from the sun. Um, but it still has an orbit around the sun, so it's still good. The next thing is it has to have sufficient mass to assume hydrostatic equilibrium, which is all just a sciencey way of saying that it's pretty much a sphere. Mm -hmm. It's okay. big enough so it doesn't just kind of like evaporate. Right. It doesn't just like disintegrate. <coughs> well, it's yeah. a sphere it doesn't that stays a sphere. Look non-spherical like an asteroid does, which has like big parts oh. jutting out of it, and it's not a ball shape at all. It's just. A mess. Pretty much that it's so. been floating around in this orbit so much that all those big messes have been worn away and okay. that it's just the sphere just that remains sphere in the orbit. But, but Pluto is more or less sphere-shaped. Yeah. Uh, right. Like right. So that's planets. a go. So that's all go. But uh -huh. where we hit a road bump is um, the celestial body has to have cleared the neighborhood around its orbit. And Pluto has not done this. There are a number of other objects within the belt um, that like flies around around Pluto and it just isn't big enough to either like pull those in or or move those mm -hmm. out of the way throughout its path. So do we know if this is, if it's like working on it, you know, is it is it working toward this certification? <laughs> well, we're just trying to urge blood. it, but <laughs> it is what it is, Pluto. We can only push it so far. Yeah, yeah. It has so to decide yeah. on its own at some point. So you're probably wondering, well, why why did we learn it and when did it change? Um, so in 2003, an astronomer saw a new object beyond Pluto. And so they thought, oh, my gosh, it's a it's another planet. And they call it Eris. And when they started talking about uh, when they found Eris was what makes a planet. That's when the discussion started. Uh, what makes a planet? Because they had so to figure out like whether this one would count. would would count as a planet, and okay. instead we would have ten planets now. Okay. So uh, instead they <laughs> decided that Pluto was not really a planet uh, because of its size and location in space. Uh, so they called Pluto and objects like it uh, dwarf planets uh, or Plutoids. So, oh, that's nice. So there are three known Plutoids, uh, Pluto, Eris, and Maki Maki. Um, and they're all uh, somewhat like Pluto. They're dwarf planets farther in space uh, that kind of have something similar. It might be a planet, but they're not really like, considered fully a planet. So uh, that's, where, that's where it started back in, in 2003. And because of the... So that a group of astronomers came together and they decided what 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 makes a planet, what doesn't make a planet, and uh, that's the what Anahita said are kind of the qualifications that that they decided upon, and that's why Pluto was kicked out of our solar system. Which is okay. It's okay that Pluto is not a planet. I know a lot of people are heartbroken about it, but you know, science is a learning and growing uh -huh. process. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's still there. We didn't get rid of it. Yeah. Not yet. And it has a big <laughs> heart that we got to see recently in the photos. So thank you, Jennifer Smith from Russell Elementary or Russell Boulevard Elementary. Well, there's more. Mm-hmm. But wait, there's more. So um, that planet, or that is not a planet, the um, the uh, object, I'm, I'm sorry, what, a plutoid? Is that the name of those objects? Mm-hmm. Eris, mm-hmm. Uh, the one that was discovered uh, just uh, a little while ago. Well, the discoverer of that, uh, one of a team, I'm sure, but uh, one of them is named Mike Brown, and he is uh, an astronomer at Caltech, the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena currently. And um, he was one of the main discoverers of Eris. Uh, He even uh, wrote a book about the experience called How I Killed Pluto. And um, here's a quote. Killing Pluto was fun, um, but this is head and shoulders above everything else. And when he says this, this new thing that is even better in his mind than than destroying a planet, um, which again he didn't really destroy it; it is still there. Sorry, kids, I'm no only joking. Involved. There's no laser, no laser blasting, death no star. death stars. Uh, it's it's still there. But he he was one of the main people responsible for having Pluto reclassified as not a planet. He's trying to make it up to us, though, mm-hmm. because apparently he's found a new planet, an even better planet, in his opinion, <laughs> uh, to replace Pluto as our solar system's ninth and farthest planet. Um, like Pluto, this would be an elliptical orbit, an oval-shaped orbit, so it wouldn't exactly be um, perfectly uh, or near perfectly in a circle around the sun like the other planets more or less are. Um, but it would be a gas giant, kind of like mm-hmm. Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune, a little bit smaller than the others, smaller than Neptune, which is currently the smallest known, um, but uh, big enough, um, at least 10 times the size of the Earth, to count as um, a gas giant. Mm. And um, so that's the good news. It looks like we're we're getting back into there being nine planets and... Uh, poor Pluto is shoved off to the, the dustbin <laughs> of astronomy while this new character takes its place. But um, here's the thing. They haven't found it yet. So this giant beast of a gas giant planet, if it exists, they don't know where it is. Oh, wow. This is all based on indirect evidence that they think this ninth planet exists. Um, and just in the last few weeks, they've revealed these... Um, this uh, theory um, through an article that has sort of set the astronomy world uh, uh, aflame here. Mm-hmm. So uh, apparently there are objects way out in Pluto country uh, in the area called the, uh, the Kuiper Belt, which is where a lot of these icy mm-hmm. semi-planet objects are found, and a lot of comets. Um, they found um, a set of, you know, small comet-like objects that sort of cluster around each other and uh, circle the sun in a particular pattern near each other in a way that, according to their theory, could not be random. It's an extremely Mm -hmm. low possibility, 0.007% chance, or about 1 in 15,000, that this could be a coincidence that these objects just circle close to each other. This group, which includes Brown, the Pluto killer, uh, (laughs) is convinced that... 
uh, a planet with roughly 10 Earth masses. Um, its gravity forced these objects together okay. um, through its own gravitational effects and that it's impossible that this is a coincidence. So now there's a frantic search out there looking for where the orbit of this planet must be to figure out where in its orbit it is. And if they actually see it and confirm that it exists, then maybe, just maybe, um, uh, children everywhere will start forgiving Dr. Brown <laughs> for killing the ninth planet of the solar system. Is there? Do we, do we think they'll name it? Brownoid or he, he may try to name it after himself. The, the, I was going to ask about naming it also. The, the previous uh, sort of custom was to name it after some sort of Greek or Roman god. Yeah. Uh, like even that Maki Maki is named after mm -hmm. uh, a god from Polynesian mythology, according oh, cool. to Wikipedia, uh, which <laughs> I just looked that up. Um, so this one... Unless he's prepared to elevate himself <laughs> to Above. the ranks of yeah. God. I don't know. Roman Mike gods. Brown, the planet killer. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I suppose he has done some pretty impressive stuff yeah. if you think about it that way. Yeah. Um, so who knows? So, so are they thinking this planet is in our solar system, or oh yeah, another? Okay. The, our, the, all of this is within our solar system. The next closest star is such an inconceivable distance away that we have no idea what kind of well, actually I don't know do they do they know if there are planets in the next yeah, solar system they have to know they, I, they think so yeah because you but, know they always talk about oh there's this thing that could be kind of like earth and then people get all excited that maybe we'll find extraterrestrial life there and and it's like yeah. millions yeah. of light years away. Yeah. yeah but but this is all within our solar system that oh, we're talking okay. about oh okay so so they're trying yeah. to find the orbit around our sun Yes. Well, yes. not so, ours, but right as of <laughs> the sun as of we right know. Now. Well, the sun we share. So there's only one sun. This is something I found out over a winter break. There's only one sun. Our sun is the only sun, and other solar systems. So they're not solar systems because they're not around uh -huh. the sun. Oh, okay. So they're called something else. Someone, but the, someone other, other that. star <laughs> systems. Other star systems that that, that orbit around a star like our sun. Exactly. Well, not, not but the sun, but, but there. So there's only one solar system. Okay, ours, which is ours. Cool. And then there's ours where we live in. Oh, I claim ownership <laughs> of it. Uh, one thing about this uh, discovery that I think is cool is a good. Uh, it's a good example of collaboration because in the articles that I read, they were talking about how this Ma Mike Brown guy, he, he saw this thing and he was like, this is really weird. And, and then when he kind of figured out what he thought it was, he got really excited. So he walked down the hall <laughs> <laughs> to his buddy at Caltech and, you know, they sat down and, you know, his, yeah. his buddy was like, yeah, that's totally... I agree. You know? That's that's convenient. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good. Yeah, and I think that's that's something that it's happening more and more frequently in the sciences. Uh, we we used to think of, which back then I'm guessing it was the only way to do science was do it yourself. But yeah. nowadays it's like, well, you know, you have this person who has this knowledge or whatever. And when we had Dr. Speck. She said, well, you know, we all share the same telescope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. We just look at different spaces and. You know, there's Out a there. different goal. Yeah, yeah. but we we're, we're all share that. So you would imagine that when you're out in Hawaii and oh yeah, uh, like three in the morning, <laughs> you may want to talk to the person right next to you. <laughs> and then who knows? Eventually, you might you might end up uh, asking for their 
Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, I I guess we'll have to wait for Planet Brown uh, <laughs> to be to be seen with an actual telescope before before we can really be sure that this is all true. But um, we'll be on the lookout for it. So yep. literally. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. All right. So with that, we're going to go on our next musical break and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCOU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening from our first show of the year. 2016. 2016. Woo-hoo. <laughs> um, all right, so you have some I have cute... my favorite topic to discuss. <laughs> uh-huh, go ahead. Is dogs. <laughs> and so uh, the first study I want to talk about actually came out last year. But um, as a little background information. Anytime anyone talks about their children and how cute they are and how they <laughs> like to play peekaboo and things like that, I want to say, oh, my sister's dog does that too, <laughs> which he does. But, you know, the parents of these kids are not okay with having their pride and joy compared to a dog, <laughs> despite him being the cutest dog of all time. But the study that came out in April of 2015 was the first study to show um, what it, uh, chemical interactions are going on with uh, between humans and dogs. Um, specifically, what chemical interactions are happening in our brains when we look at dogs. And so when a human adult looks at a dog, the same hormonal response is produced as when a human adult looks at a human infant. Mm-hmm. So just the same way um, my body would react to a niece or nephew is the way that my body reacts to a dog niece or nephew. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what makes it even more interesting is that same hormonal response that dogs have when they're around their dog families is the same hormonal response that they have when they're with their human families. So there truly is this hormonal <laughs> uh, dependence between our two species hmm. and that's why we love our dogs so that makes much. me think okay so <laughs> but, but is that is that why we're we domesticated them like how did that does that bond made them dom- like be domesticated it's interesting that you bring that up because that's what my <laughs> other article is about so for years um how dogs came to be domesticated was a big question Um, The most logical, or I guess obvious answer, being that um, hunters and gatherers many years ago found a wolf pup that they just grabbed and um, started taming and raised with maybe tamer wolves or um, other wolf pups that they had tamed themselves and uh, started breeding, breeding them to get this tamer domesticated species, which is dogs. But that seems very unlikely um, at the same time because wolves are very hard to tame in general. Even as puppies, they're very rebellious. And um, it's much more plausible that, in fact, dogs actually just tamed themselves. Meaning that maybe some slightly tamer dogs that were around hunters and gatherers realized that being tame around the hunters and gatherers would uh, afford them some securities from the humans or food or shelter, some warmth, leftovers. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and so this this bond just naturally happened of a slightly tamer wolf just said, oh, hey, if I don't bite you, 
then you can take care of me and I can take care of you. And that's how that kind of came to be, we believe now. Hmm. And so there's new evidence saying that. What field is that even from? Is that like evolution studies? Yes. Um, So it's uh, this comes from a biology professor at Hampshire College. His name is Dr. Raymond Raymond Copinger, and that's in England, um, Oxford, England. Okay. And um, so he studies evolution in general, I believe, if I'm reading this correctly. Sure. And so that he just kind of focused on dogs for a while. And he actually suggests that dogs are a parasite. Oh. On humans. Um, Blasphemy. But a, a lovable one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, like, it, it eventually at least turned into some sort of symbiotic relationship. I mean, they do <laughs> like kind of take care of us and yeah. bark at the bad guys and <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah. So one of the uh, points... So, so children will be called parasite too? I mean... Oh, for sure. <laughs> From conception, that's like the definition of them. We're very pro-children in this room. Wow. Wow. Did you see how fast that that was? Just devolved so quickly. Adam, that was... It's not a personal thing. It's just technically final definition. I'm just just shocked at how quickly it became. I think about it with dogs, and I just mentioned babies, and boom, Adam, boom, Adam, and I are just here sitting, okay. I'm not prepared to defend them either. <laughs> I'm just fascinated. So. Well, so we have about one billion dogs in the world, but only about a quarter of them are actually pets. Huh. So it is kind of harsh to call them oh. well, uh, parasites. The rest of them are wild? They either are wild, as in incredibly wild, that they're in the wild, and that they've just evolved from wolves, or that... They roam free within cities, within villages, scavenging for food. So there's like the African painted dogs and coyotes and stuff. And then there's just Hmm. random stray dogs. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so they they may be friendly. (laughs) These dogs may be friendly, but they're not, they're not necessarily our friends or pets. pets, So they're not. I don't know. It's kind of harsh to call them parasites, I guess. Oh, Unlike yeah. children. Who, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, well. <laughs> All right. So dogs were domesticated. Uh. Yeah. And just another interesting thing that the um, that this article I read brought up was that another huge difference between wolves and dogs is that wolves are um, faithful parents and mates. They will mate for life, um, usually, and they'll raise their, their pups, but dogs are not, will not do that. That's not in their, I guess, genetic upbringing. So at some point they became faithful to us and not their own families. Wow. Oh, okay. So I have a weird question. So you said earlier that, um, we feel like the dogs are our babies according to the chemicals and everything that happened when we see them and they feel like we're their parents. So children, do they feel like the dogs are their siblings? Like, I wonder I, if, because I, I would kind of find it hard to believe that they have really strong parental So I, I guess to clarify, I should feelings. say that dogs see humans as their family. So oh, okay. they will identify an alpha within the house okay. or within the home, within that family unit. But um, that doesn't mean that they don't recognize other people as family Mm-hmm. just not their alpha. Okay. And so I know 
for the example of my sister's dog, I'm not the alpha. Sure. But he does recognize me as family. Cool. So I'm probably his sister. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, but like, yeah, so my... when you were a child, mm-hmm. do you think you recognized him as your brother? I mean, I he mean, probably wasn't around technically, but yeah, in this but the theoretical scenario. dog. Yeah. yeah I, I feel like in general, humans um, do have a hormonal response uh-huh. um, based on what I read to dogs and that it's, it is the same as looking at family. Okay. Is it possible for the dog uh, the dog, him or herself, to be the alpha in a family. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think I think we all probably are thinking of some some dogs that we know <laughs> that perhaps a little bit We're too free with their the absolutely. House. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. And in that case, it's actually really interesting because they'll be the alpha of your pack, but um, unlike their own children, they may be more protective of you. Than their own biological children. Wow. So it may be beneficial to let the dog rule the household. <laughs> it all well, just depends I mean, on if how, I guess, how their pups are raised in association with the parents. Uh-huh. It's not an automatic connection. I love these type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So right. uh, I promise I'm not like a dog hater or a kid hater or anything. <laughs> like, uh, um, and so I even found this article that was talking about dog intelligence. It was on Scientific American, and they're just interviewing this um, this expert in dog intelligence. Uh, his name is Hare Brian. Yeah, Brian Hare. Um, and so they're just asking him all these questions about dog intelligence and he so they asked you know what's the biggest misconception and his answer is that people think that oh my dog's really smart or my dog's really dumb he said no it's really not like you are working with one of the um it's a very specifically evolved creature like they're they're all smart and this sounds so politically correct like (laughs) we're pandering to the dog feelings but he he is asserting that no all dogs are intelligent it's just that some of the things that we normally associate with being smart are just not things that that breed does but that breed you know does other things that you just may or may not care about Hmm. but even the fact that like you can point Mm -hmm. and the dog looks where you're pointing means he's taking your visual perception and so he's saying, you know, oh, I if this was that. me, because, <laughs> you know, if you're pointing behind him, mm-hmm. he can he can figure that out. Um, and so even that characteristic apparently is just very unique wow. and um, a, a a very intelligent sign that I don't know. These dogs are smarter than we think. Hmm. I'd always wondered if it was intelligence or if it was like stubbornness, like if a dog's really stubborn, oh, then sure. it's hard to train them. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, so so he goes on to say that some of the things that these other these other things that dogs are good at, um, sometimes you can really only see them if you're actually doing cognitive tests on dogs. Mm-hmm. So we might not notice them in our household, but in a lab they can see that you no know, clearly so this dog is displaying this Behavior. trait or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I hope that redeems All puppies my... are smart <laughs> in their own way. They're, sweet. They're just different like humans are. <laughs> Each person is different. It really does sound like politically it correct. Does. Yeah. yeah. And there's going to be someone at home and they're like, no, you know, this, this slobbering thing in front of me is yeah, not that bright. But. Well, or someone with 
many dogs who can see differences among the same breed of dog. Different individual dogs, some are smarter than others. Yeah. Yeah. That's my guess anyway. (laughs) I I don't know. We'll have to someday investigate if cats are smarter than dogs. On oh, the show. I don't know. We'll have to talk about sure. all the studies. We it sounds like a that. divisive kind of, <laughs> oh, yeah. kind of thing. Are you on the cat side? Of according, <laughs> well, according to Inside Out, dogs are smarter than cats. Mm. Oh, yeah. No doubt saw, they're a completely saw, unbiased, <laughs> neutral source. If I'm you, sure if the you writer of that piece doesn't have a dog credits. at home. If you saw the after credits, <laughs> they say that dogs actually can't control their... Emotions. It was but a pretty, cats are just a pretty scientific movie. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it I like to funny. think maybe they, they kept I, that in the. I ad, I admit I enjoyed the cat's brain. <laughs> yeah. Because it fit my cat's brain pretty well. <laughs> just random mini psychological cats yep. hitting buttons and. And they all none of them actually care about. Yeah. yeah. What's going on what, in the outside world? It's going from a complete with the actual cat. Here's the real part: going from a complete standstill and just sitting there uh, on the porch or something to bouncing all over the, the room and going completely crazy without any reason to do so. That does sound like a real cat. Yeah, so. Since we're on the topic of cats, have you seen all these videos about cats and cucumbers? What? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I saw one. There, these videos were like all over Facebook over the past month and it's it's just a cat with a cucumber next to it and the cat will like look over and see the cucumber and like jump <laughs> and they're actually it, the videos are pretty funny because it's just seems like out of nowhere that this cat would be afraid of a cucumber huh. but um, what's interesting about it is studies show that the cat has the same response to a cucumber as it does to a snake. Oh. So it thinks that it's a snake. Sure. And it's actually really Poor sad. Cat. Yeah. <laughs> but these are cats that would have never seen a snake. You know? Oh, yeah. And they, yeah. they have they this still instinctive. Have this. I mean, it's still know, in there, right? Response. It's, it's in there. Yeah, that's cool. Genetic yeah. coding to yeah. be scared of cucumbers and snakes. <laughs> well, snakes, but they identify <laughs> the cucumber as a snake. So. Well, we, you never know. Well, yeah. Maybe the cucumbers were like Venus flytraps. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> We. It all comes together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So with that, we're going to close on our first show of the year. Thanks for listening. You were listening to The Big Electron on KCUU 88.1 FM. And we will, uh, yeah, we will be here next week with more science news and interesting stuff happening in the science world. Have a good night.